The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look at the top stories in the coming week from our Daybreak anchors all around the world. And straight ahead on the program, Good Friday is coming, but will it be a good Friday for the March jobs report from the Labor Department? I'm Tom Busby in New York. I'm Caroline Hepke in London, where we're looking ahead to President Joe Biden's visit to Northern Ireland. I'm Brian Curtis in Hong Kong. How much surprise might be coming in the shuffling of chairs at the BOJ? I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. We'll take a look at the political ramifications of Donald Trump's indictment. That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend on Bloomberg 1130 New York, Bloomberg 991 Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 1061 Boston, Bloomberg 960 San Francisco, DAB Digital Radio London, Sirius XM 119, and around the world on BloombergRadio.com and via the Bloomberg Business app. Good day to you. I'm Tom Busby, and we begin the program with the March jobs report. It's coming this Friday. Yes, this Friday is a market holiday. All U.S. stock and bond markets will be closed, but the report is coming out anyway. Joining me now with a sneak peek of what to expect, Bloomberg's global economics and policy editor, Michael McKee. Welcome, Michael. I'll be working. Uh, you know, I can, I can uh, warn you that. <laughs> Because <laughs> right. we do have the numbers coming out, and we are expecting it to be a reasonably good Friday if you're uh, somebody who's employed. Uh, jobs created, they're forecasting uh, 240,000. So um, that's that quali- that's what would qualify, Tom, as progress these days because uh, we've been in the uh, fives and threes the last couple of months. So we're, we're looking for a slowdown, and I guess 240,000 would sort of constitute that. But it's definitely not uh, recession territory, at least as far as the economist survey. Yeah, still strong. I mean, like you said, January, over 530,000. February was strong. And despite the rash of layoffs we've seen, especially in the tech sector, I mean, is this really unusual that it's still expected to be so strong for March? It is a bit unusual, uh, but then everything is coming out of this pandemic. We saw so many people lose their jobs at once during the pandemic, and then it's been very difficult to get everybody fitted back into the places that they were before, especially the uh, lower income, lower uh, status jobs that um, people don't really want to do. It's been hard for bars and restaurants to hire waiters and waitresses and bartenders and things like that. Uh, And, you know, lawn uh, service people, things like that. So those service industries are still hiring, still raising wages, which kind of puts the um, onus on the average hourly earnings. We'll see if, if those slow down at all. The forecast is for a little bit of an increase on a month-over-month basis, but a drop year-over-year. Year. And so uh, the, the Fed will be watching this closely, as they have with all the jobs reports, because they want to see how much strength the economy still has. 
And, you know, you talked about weakness in, in some services sector, bars, restaurants, hotels. But where is the strength in the jobs market? It's been in some uh, places you wouldn't necessarily expect. Uh, we have seen strength in manufacturing still, although that is starting to fade because now, of course, uh, you have um, you know, manufacturing. People are not buying goods, as, as many goods. Uh, but we've also seen strength in construction, which has been a surprise because uh, – We've, we know housing is in trouble, and builders had been cutting back. They seem to be uh, moving forward again now, but uh, construction's been strong. And retail. Now, the retail thing is a little bit tricky, and since this is Bloomberg, I can be a little bit nerdy. Um, the seasonal adjustment factors uh, come into it at the beginning of the year because normally you hire a lot of people in the late fall for the holiday shopping period, and then you let them go in January, February. But it seems like it was harder to hire people people this year and uh, there's labor hoarding going on companies don't want to get rid of people so seasonal adjustments are making retail sales look really good too and that's uh, I think a surprise to everybody the retail sales I, I believe in February the biggest gain was in department stores percentage wise yeah uh, and uh, I don't think we'll see that again because that was probably done by the overall seasonal factor that we didn't get rid of as many people as we usually do. So it'll probably be another category. It'll be interesting to see if it is construction, if if that stays strong, because we're going to start getting into the better weather when you'd think construction would pick up. And then, of course, all the storms out in California and the tornadoes down south mean more home building. So uh, we'll see if, if those categories stay strong. And let's talk about the wage component, because you brought up that that some of these very hard-to-find jobs, some of the lowest-paying ones, lawn care and, and bars and restaurants, these owners are forced to hike the wages to attract more people. And is that lifting all boats? And, and you know, is that still a problem for, for the Fed's role in trying to drive inflation lower by driving wages lower? Well, it is a problem for the Fed, and it's basically uh – something they hope will naturally cure itself as people uh, get more as more people go to work in those categories and uh, then they don't have to offer as much money the uh, the employers to get people to take those jobs but we have seen a decline in the labor force and uh, so we don't have as many people available to take the jobs so it's something that the fed is keeping an eye on we had the uh, pce uh core rate X housing out on Friday. And uh, that's the one that the Fed follows because uh, outside of uh, the construction workers uh, for housing, they're looking at services industry hiring. And basically that uh, came down significantly to uh, just a three-tenths percent gain for the month of February. So maybe we still see some uh, more progress with that. Yeah. And it, it looks like uh, you know vindication for the Fed's plans that, hey, this may be working. Yeah, it may be working. <laughs> Maybe. And, I, and I talked to Susan Collins, the Boston Fed president, on uh, Friday, and she basically told us that uh, it is working, but we have a lot more to go. Uh, we have a lot farther to go. I mean, inflation has fallen, but it's still double or more the Fed's target. And so they're going to keep raising rates. Um, she wasn't making any predictions, but basically she's said in the past probably one more quarter point increase, and then they want to leave them there. 
at a high level for the rest of the year. And uh, that's not what Wall Street is expecting. No, and that uh, next FOMC meeting is just one month from this weekend. Yeah, it's, it's, it seems like a more compressed time period because we get um, just one jobs report, one CPI report between the last one and this one. Uh, next one. And that's different than what we saw uh, before the uh, March meeting because we had two of each. So the Fed will have a little bit less data. And of course, the jobs report coming out next Friday is going to be three weeks ahead of the Fed. So it's kind of, they're going to be looking at other indicators as well, trying to parse out what uh, is actually happening in the economy at that time. Gotcha. You know, another piece of, of the puzzle on labor is. All the baby boomers, uh, the New York Fed came out with a report just last week on why there are so many fewer workers out there. And the reason they've come up with is baby boomers during the pandemic just said, you know what, Uh, I don't want to get sick. I don't want to travel in. I'm done. And over two million spots haven't been filled since the pandemic. And a lot of them are people over 65 that just said, hey, I'm done working. Yeah, that uh, was a. We were watching a lot of baby boomers retire. We have been for about ten years, and so it's been a trend. But then it looks like a lot of people just got to the pandemic and they said go home for a while, and people said, "Well, I just go stay." And so that has cut the number of people available to take jobs. But uh, we've still got so many jobs available that it's uh, it, it has forced the wage rates up. Uh, And now the question is, do we see more people start to come back? And a lot of people, certainly just to make ends meet, have to come back to the labor force. Yeah. And there's another group, too, that doesn't get a lot of publicity, but it's the people with long COVID. Uh, There's several hundred thousand estimated who are out of the labor force because they got long COVID. And the hope is that most of them can come back, but it's going to take time. And then this labor shortage just uh, exacerbates the inflation problem. So the combination of the retirees and those who are unable to come back because of their health has really uh, put the economy a little bit behind on the inflation front, uh, um, among other reasons. Well, Michael, one last thing I want to ask you about is the data that we're seeing in this uh, March report coming up on Friday is from the middle of February, the middle of March. And right around that time is when we saw this banking crisis begin to unfold. How do you think that will affect if at all, the March report, but are we really going to see something maybe in the April report? It's going to be interesting uh, timing because the Fed sends out a survey of bank uh, loan officers, and it is usually uh, for the month of April. It would be out uh, in the out in the banks right now. And then um, they release it the uh, first Monday after the next month, so May 6th. Well, May 3rd is the Fed meeting. But I did ask Susan Collins about it, and she said we would have – they, the Fed would have the data, and they would get a picture of whether or not we're seeing a significant increase in uh, banks raising their lending standards and cutting back on credit. That's going to be uh, an issue. The theory is that banks will cut back on credit, but uh, until th- many had already done that uh, because the economy was slowing. So until they get some proof of it, the Fed isn't going to know whether that actually is going to happen. Gotcha. Okay, Michael, thank you so much. That's Bloomberg Global Economic and Policy Editor Michael McKeon. Coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, the long goodbye of the outgoing head of the Bank of Japan. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg.
The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. Up later in our program, the U.S. and Ireland in focus. We'll tell you why. But first, changing of the guard about to take place at the Bank of Japan with the longtime head of the central bank stepping down. Bloomberg's global economics and policy editor Kathleen Hayes has covered it all and has this special look back at the ups and downs during his tenure. Haruhiko Kuroda took over as governor of the Bank of Japan in March of 2013. Two months before Kuroda took over, the BOJ signed a landmark accord with the former prime minister, Shinzo Abe, to reach 2% inflation in the shortest time possible. After being sworn in, he committed to a two-year deadline to reach that target and introduced his bold strategy called quantitative and qualitative easing, the first step in what soon became known as his monetary bazooka. A year later, Kuroda fired another shot, the infamous Halloween surprise, shocking markets as the BOJ nearly doubled its yearly bond purchase target from 50 to 80 trillion yen. In January of 2016, the BOJ narrowly voted to cut its key rate to negative 0.1 percent. The public backlash was immediate and fierce. Eight months later, the BOJ adopted its most innovative step of all, yield curve control, tying the 10-year Japanese government bond yield to zero and becoming the first central bank in the world to take this radical monetary step to spur inflation. By the time Kuroda was reappointed, inflation was above zero, but it didn't reach the 2% target. Kuroda then fine-tuned YCC by allowing it to move around double the rate of 10 basis points on either side of zero. In early 2021, concerns were growing after the BOJ became the biggest single holder of Japanese stocks. By September 2022, a weakening in the yen helped boost the BOJ's key inflation metric, reaching 4% by the end of the year. Three months later, Kuroda rocked markets once again with a surprising decision to widen the 10-year yield band, doubling it to 0.5%. By 2023, investors are already betting some of his ultra-loose policies will be dismantled before long. How history will judge Kurodonomics is still uncertain as a new team prepares to take charge of the BOJ. Bloomberg's Kathleen Hayes reporting. And for more on Kuroda's legacy and what happens next with Japan's monetary policy, we go to Hong Kong and Bloomberg Daybreak Asia host Brian Curtis. Tom, 
Kathleen Hayes joins us now. So a change at the top at the BOJ, long awaited, sometimes feared, and perhaps spring-loaded for a surprise, Kathleen. We got a tease of that from the Deputy Governor Shinichi Uchida, who's new in the post. And he said when the time comes for the bank to adjust yield curve control, it may have to be a surprise. That's going to make the run-up to the next meeting quite exciting. Well, he did say that it may very well be a surprise. I think what he's saying is we're not necessarily going to signal this. Now, in in my estimation, to have them do something at the very first meeting would be uh, a surprise. Uh, they don't have to do this today. In fact, you notice that uh, bond yields have, have settled down more. The, you know, the yen is strengthened again. It doesn't seem like the market's putting a lot of pressure on the BOJ right now. And if they're not going to surprise, here's what kind of surprising to me. They, what kind of language will Ueda use in his press conference? Because that's where it seems to me they could start opening the door, opening the door a little bit wider. But uh, I would find it very exciting. I'd love it if they came in at the first meeting and did something significant on yield yeah. curve control. In our piece, we talk about how there might be a massive bond sell-off uh, if this was tipped ahead of time. Um, might there still be a bond sell-off once it gets announced? Absolutely, and I think this terrific piece from Ruth Carson, Masaki Kondo, and Michael McKenzie is, is exactly what they say, that uh, whether you surprise or not, it's going to be a major shift when the Japanese bond holders of overseas bonds, what are their $3.4 trillion fire hose was unleashed on the investment world is how they start their piece. It's going to create waves. Look what's happened. You know, a lot of the run-up to the banking crisis that's going on in, in the U.S. That, that fed into Europe now was triggered by the fact that aggressive rate hikes by the Fed, a big balance sheet, all of that, uh, put the bond market, put investors in a position where when something started shifting, even if it wasn't a surprise, it ended up, given a couple of incidental uh, incidences like the SVB meltdown that is still riling, riling bond markets. Hmm. It's such an interesting outlook at the moment because inflation is actually above target. Uh, but the BOJ, both the, the outgoing governor and the incoming governor, are still saying that the Bank of Japan is trying to get inflation up to 2%, up to the target of 2%. You want to try to explain the nuances of that to the audience? Up to 2% sustainably. Yes. Inflation got up to just even over 4% because of fresh food prices, energy prices, Corota and the team that was in place, uh, the shift still being made. That's been their position. It's going to start coming down. And in fact, the, the forecast, one one big thing that's going to happen at the, at the first meeting for Ueda is that they're going to revise their outlook for the economy inflation. At the, at the last time they revised it, it was at 1.9 for this year and then below that for next year. That would be significant if they suggest they see it higher. But that's the position. And they're even with wages in the Shunto, spring wage negotiations, having come in fairly good, maybe even better than previous years, they still don't seem to be convinced the old team that it's going to stay that way. That's another thing we'll get from the new team led by Ueda. Obviously, it's it's a lot easier to get inflation up if you have strong growth. What's happening on the growth front at the moment? I think there are some concerns about growth, and particularly with the the, the prospect of a global recession. You know, the U.S. Uh, is surely going to get one, according to a lot of Fed watchers and even uh, some Fed officials. That it's it's maybe not inevitable, but likely to have a recession. What does that mean for the rest of the world? Japan's an exporting nation, so I think that's a concern too. 
So we mentioned that Kazuo Ueda comes in. He's set to take the helm on April 9th. What's the opening message that we might get from him? The opening message will surely be that they are watching the data, that they can see where it is now, that uh, the path to normalization lies ahead. The question is when normalization will clearly be needed, when it will need to start. And that's the, the, the probably the bottom line. You won't say, well, we don't know. We, it's pretty clear they're going to normalize. But again, that is the question. Uh, do, are they at a point where they are, are convinced that inflation is going to stay high and above 2% and that the economy is going to hold in, right, and not start pulling back? And when the conditions for, of normalization are met, they will surely need to change yield curve control. That's what the deputy governor said, that he said they will surely have to do it, but they, certain conditions have to be met. If we take a step back and look at the coordination between the fiscal authorities and the monetary authorities, how do they connect? The ruling Democratic Party and a lot of those, or maybe even the majority, are still on the abenomics side, right, where you keep rates low. And one of the reasons they want to keep rates low is they've got a big deficit to fund and they're going to be bringing in a, a much larger defense budget this year and they don't want to raise taxes. So I think that's one of the push pulls right now that is going to have to be dealt with. Biggest challenge at the moment? Communication. I, I'm, mm. I'm, I'm, what pops into my head is that what everybody has said going into this, every, you know, person who's been on the BOJ or close to the BOJ, that communication is going to be very critical. They've got to maintain credibility. They've got to guide the markets. They can't overpromise, And they have to be, what the markets are going to want, don't you, wouldn't you agree, Brian, because you watch this so closely too. They want to get a sense of the path, right? They want to get a sense of the inclination. So how do you give them that without overpromising or saying so much that makes the markets impatient, that's going to be difficult. Kathleen, thanks so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Kathleen Hayes, Bloomberg Global Policy and Economy Editor. I'm Brian Curtis. You can catch Doug Krisner and me each weekday here for Bloomberg Daybreak Asia, beginning at 6 a.m. in Hong Kong and 6 p.m. on Wall Street. Tom? Thank you, Brian. And coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, President Biden eyes trips to the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland for a key anniversary. I'm Tom Busby. This is Bloomberg. The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. 
Broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Bloomberg 1130. To Washington, D.C. Bloomberg 991. To Boston. Bloomberg 1061. To San Francisco. Bloomberg 960. To the country. Sirius XM Channel 119. To London. DAB Digital Radio. And around the globe. The Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. I'm Tom Busby in New York with your global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. Coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, a look ahead to what's happening in Washington. But first, President Joe Biden says he intends to travel to the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland to help mark 25 years since the signing of the Good Friday Peace Agreement. For more, let's head to London and bring in Bloomberg Daybreak Europe anchor Caroline Hepker. Tom, the 11th of April is the anniversary of the US brokered deal that largely brought to an end decades of violence, the so-called troubles in Northern Ireland. Joining me now is Bloomberg's Dublin Bureau Chief Morwenna Conian. Morwenna, thanks so much for being with us. This is a very significant anniversary of the 1998 peace deal, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, it marks 25 years, so a quarter of a century of essentially peace in Northern Ireland following a period of three decades known as the Troubles, um, which were blighted by sectarian violence and, you know, really damaged um, the economy as well as, of course, costing thousands of lives um, in Northern Ireland. So how significant is it that President Biden will come to visit both the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland? Yeah, it is something that people are very excited about, the prospect Mm. of, of course, President Clinton, the the US president uh, in 1998, was um, a big part of the original peace deal. So it it is a significant occasion for him to be coming to market, uh, particularly, of course, as we have seen so much um, turmoil in Northern Ireland again over the protocol and the Brexit deal. Yeah, the the UK and the European Union have now signed off on their new Brexit deal that uh, deals with the trade relationship between Northern Ireland uh, and the the rest of the UK and Northern Ireland and Europe. Um, But that was not sort of without its difficulties. um, And yeah, there have been quite uh, a lot of concerns around that. In fact, the Stormont Assembly is still not sitting despite that agreement. No, indeed it isn't. And so whilst the UK government have signed off on what's known as the Windsor Framework, which was meant to be a way uh, to work around some of the issues in Northern Ireland, the Democratic Unionist Party, um, which is one of the two parties which required for the current power-sharing assembly at Stormont, they have not accepted that framework and they are still refusing to participate in the power sharing assembly for Northern Ireland, meaning that there is no devolved government there. Um, And at the moment, you know, they, despite what the UK government have said about this agreement, you know, they are adamant that it doesn't meet their demands. Um, There doesn't seem to be any movement on that from them and other unionist parties um, I saw today, you know, the Orange Order have said that they absolutely, you know, do not think that their Stormont should be sitting until their concerns about what Brexit means for Northern Ireland are resolved. Yeah, absolutely. So 
Is there a chance of reconciliation then? You know, you mentioned the objections there of some parts of the community. And yet, of course, everybody's also aware that without devolved government, um, you know, matters are very difficult uh, for Northern Ireland in in terms of self-governance. Absolutely. I mean, you know, there's a lot of discontent at the moment because, as you said, we don't have them dealing with issues, day-to-day issues, things like setting budgets, things like helping with the cost of living. You know, they are at the mercy of Westminster deciding to try and pass things through, but essentially little is being done. And so other parties are extremely frustrated about that. Um, but if the, the moment the way the constitution works is that as the second biggest party and the biggest unionist party, the Democratic unionists do need to um, participate. You know, you can't you can't exclude them. Um, so there doesn't seem to be much hope for anything happening anytime soon. That said, other parties, um, such as the Alliance Party, which is the third biggest party, um, I spoke to them last week. You know, they said that they, they would go back in tomorrow. You know, if, if they could. Um, despite the fact that, you know, a lot of people would be calling for there to be some sort of discussion about mm. how to prevent this situation occurring again. I think most most people who are trying to work to represent communities there do see that some government is better than none and do want to get on with it as soon as possible. And yet the backdrop to all of this is also very difficult because the terror threat has been raised also in relation to Northern Ireland. Yes, so that happened yesterday from the UK government. Um, There have been a few incidents uh, in recent months. Um, We did see the shooting of an off-duty police officer. Um, There has been some, you know, disquiet. I think that particular incident was attributed to the real IRA, which is seen as a um, sort of fringe of the original Irish Republican Army on the Republican side. Um, however, um, this ha- that hasn't been wide-scale violence, and it, it isn't specified exactly what the what the terror threat relates to. Um, but it, it was obviously something of concern. It hasn't been. It was mm. uh, lowered, I think, um, in in the early 2020s. So you know, this isn't something that anybody wants to see, especially ahead of a U.S. presidential visit. Mm. Yeah, absolutely, and and it's also. Um, should be underlined the importance of Joe Biden's stance here, the relationship between Joe Biden and the UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. Um, you know, it's really quite pivotal. So I suppose I want to go back to the idea of the importance, the ramifications of Biden actually visiting, spending time, firstly, you know, in Northern Ireland, then um, in the Republic. But but on that idea of Biden's political role, even now, to do with Northern Ireland. Um, the peace agreement and the UK's Brexit? Yes, I mean, you know, he's seen, the US is seen as being generally very popular um, in Ireland and Northern Ireland. Um, It's also seen as being a sort of unifying force, so to speak, because it isn't um, bound up with these um, historical alliances and particularly within Northern Ireland, um, the sense of whether you're British or Irish. Um, so it is incredibly important. It is a very critical time. Um, there had been speculation that if Stormont wasn't sitting, he wouldn't come. But he does mm. seem to be adamant that he does he does want to come. Um, you know, he said that since the terror threat was raised, um, it's you know it's an incredibly significant moment uh, for him to be coming. And I think 
overwhelmingly people are determined to celebrate 25 years of the Good Friday Agreement and of um, relative peace rather than focusing on the um, continuing, you know, divisions and disputes. And then um, Biden, who has uh, Irish heritage himself, is also going to be visiting Ireland and at a around the 50th anniversary of when President John F. Kennedy visited Ireland back in 1963. So you've got another anniversary there. So you know, very, very symbolic days. Um, so we are looking at the next few weeks, and that is something which I think the state you know, welcomes very much. It, as you say, it is a um, historic moment in terms of uh, the, the first presidential visit or, or the 50 years ago presidential visit. Wenner, um, one other bit of information that we have is that the Clintons may also visit. Yes. So the Clintons will be taking part uh, in an event that's being held by Queen's University Belfast the week after the uh, anniversary of the agreement. And of course, that's hugely significant because um, Bill Clinton, President Bill Clinton was the the president who was involved with the signing. And Hillary Clinton, former Secretary of State of the United States, um, I believe is um, has connections to Queen's University Belfast as well. So that's a, that's a you know hugely significant presence to be to be there at, at the event. Thanks to Moena Conium, uh, Bloomberg's Dublin bureau chief, for joining me. So we await then the arrival of the US President Joe Biden uh, to Northern Ireland and Ireland at a very significant moment, significant anniversary for the island of Ireland. I'm Caroline Hepker here in London. You can catch us every weekday morning for Bloomberg Daybreak. You're at beginning at 6am in London. That's 1am on Wall Street. Tom. Thank you, Caroline. And coming up here on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, shaping up to be a busy week ahead in the nation's capital. I'm Tom Busby. This is Bloomberg. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. Donald Trump will be arraigned in the criminal case against him on Tuesday afternoon following his indictment on Thursday. Sources tell Bloomberg that the former president will hear the charges brought by Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg and will enter a plea of not guilty at a hearing at the New York State Supreme Courthouse. For what we can expect, let's head down to Washington now and hear from Bloomberg Washington correspondent Joe Matthew. 
Tom, there are two sides to this issue, political and legal, and so we put together a panel to cover both. I'm joined now by Bloomberg News politics reporter Mike Dorning in Washington and June Grasso, host of Bloomberg Law, with us from New York. June, you're up first. What are you watching for on Tuesday? I think that you have to remember that Alvin Bragg doesn't want to lose this case. He doesn't want to be the first person who prosecuted a former president and then the first person who lost that prosecution. So and he's been he's a very careful person. And I think that he would not bring this case unless he was sure that he could prove it to a jury beyond a reasonable doubt. Mike Dorning, let's talk politics for a moment, because there there is a belief that this will actually help Donald Trump in the near term, maybe help him secure the nomination. Uh, of course, he's leading that race right now. But does this do anything uh, other than galvanize the existing MAGA base? It definitely helps him in the short term, and it helps not only galvanize his MAGA base around him, but it makes it harder for these lesser known primary candidates, his rivals, to differentiate himself. It's harder for them to attack Trump, not that it was easy before, but it's super hard now. Mm-hmm. And he's just going to suck up all the political oxygen in these coming months with this case. And so that just makes it harder for them to create their own identities that mm-hmm. sell themselves to those voters as distinct winners. Um, but over the long term, I'm, I don't think it really does help it. Is that because they have to to kind of support him right now? We saw just about every Republican, never mind every Republican in the race or prospectively in the race, come out to say that this was a horrible moment and a witch hunt. Yeah, I think most of them feel like they have to support him because a large part of the Republican Party is, is super fans of Trump. And those people are the people who are most likely to be engaged in primaries and especially most likely to be engaged politically in this phase of the primary process. So you're talking about the most dedicated, strongest Republicans that matter right now. And those people are really going to be full on, um, you know, Trump supporters. And you can see that in the political reaction in Congress. You have all the House members who have smaller districts. They're all coming out behind them. Most of the senators, particularly the leaders, are being quiet and trying to stay out of it. Republicans are not fans of Alvin Bragg, uh, June, and I don't need to tell you that, but we keep hearing the George Soros trope every time his name comes up, uh, but also, you know, an effort to get him to provide materials from the investigation that three chairs in the Republican-led House have asked for here. And they can he's keep firing doing that. back, of course. He's he not going to do that. They can keep but, asking. Well, they he's also remind us that he was running on this uh, from the beginning. Put that in context for our listeners. How true well, is that? Uh, see, as I remember his campaign, it wasn't focused on Trump at all. In fact, when he was asked that question, he'd say, that's something I may have to consider in the future, so I can't speak about it. Now, when he was part of the state attorney general's office, he did he did lead or pursue a case against Trump, you know, a civil case at that point. But I don't remember his campaign at all being based on that. I mean, he was running on things like the bail bonds and, and things like that and having a more open prosecution in, you know, prosecutor's office, more open to lowering the charges against certain people. I mean, he didn't run on Trump at all. Many thanks to Bloomberg Law host June Grasso and Bloomberg political reporter Mike Dorning. A lot to watch in the coming week. Tom?
All right, thank you, Joe. Bloomberg Sound On host Joe Matthew reporting from our Bloomberg 991 newsroom in Washington. And you can hear Sound On daily from 1 to 3 p.m. Wall Street time right here on Bloomberg Radio. That does it for this edition of Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Join us again Monday morning at 5 a.m. Wall Street time for the latest on markets overseas and the news you need to start your day. I'm Tom Busby. Stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.